Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. We have been in a series here at the church on faith that's been going for about six weeks. And if you've missed any of those messages and want to catch up with any of them, you can go back to our podcast. You'll just search for RCC Phoenix or Roots Community Church Phoenix on your favorite podcasting app, and you should be able to catch up with us there. But I want to wrap up this series in a way that I wasn't really planning on wrapping it up. I was uh, I had a completely different message lined up to kind of cap off the series and then as I got into my study this week and reviewing some things I just kind of felt impressed to address something and deal with it in a kind of a, a different way. Um, several years ago, 2008 to 2011 specifically, my wife and I and our family, along with a bunch of people, moved to the city of Dallas, Texas. We were in the North Dallas area, and I had the distinct pleasure of putting up with the most obnoxious football fans in the world, the Dallas Cowboy fans. I couldn't go anywhere, anytime, whether they made the playoffs or they were good or bad without somebody screaming, how about them boys, right? And um, so we went to Dallas to try to help uh, with a group of people to try to help um, some people plan a church. And uh, we were there for three years in that endeavor. During that time we lived there, we rented an apartment and the apartment complex that we were in had three stories. And we lived on the top floor. Um, We didn't really like the stairs very much. If you've ever lived on the top floor of an apartment, you would understand that fully, I'm sure. But we lived on the top floor, but liked it because they had vaulted ceilings. The ceilings were, you know, nice and tall. And because when I walked out towards the, the, the back of the apartment, I could open up the blinds and look out over this creek. Now it was a man-made creek. The creek had um, uh, had been there for several years, and the edges of it had this really nice grass. Now I'm in Phoenix, and so most of the yards here, if they don't have fake grass, have uh, dirt and rocks. So the lush green vegetation that I got to see every morning was quite a treat for me as someone who would like to grab a cup of coffee and just sit out and look over nature, you know, in the mornings. Well, on either side of this creek, there was these giant, um, just giant areas of just thick, luscious grass, and it kind of sloped down into the creek. And the creek, when it was built, they dug out this channel or this trench in the middle, and they put walls, concrete walls, on either side so that it would contain the water that was going to flow through it. They designed this uh, many years before we ever got there and before the apartment complex was built, and so it was fully functional when we got there. So it was just nice to kind of look out over and see the the water, and there was a, a path for people to you know ride their bike or walk their dog or get a walk-in in the morning or a jog or something. Well, about two years into our stay, I was very rudely woken up in the middle of the morning, uh, very early actually in the morning, before 6 a.m. to the sound of a backhoe coming into that area. There's a giant construction, you know, vehicle, and they began to dig up all of the grass on both sides of the creek that I really enjoyed looking at in the mornings. And so um, they were there every day and they were digging it up and there was nothing but dirt after a while and these giant trenches on the outside of the creek. <clears throat> I went down to the to the the office at the apartment complex and I said, "Hey, what's going on here? Like, you know, I'm, you're kind of messing up my vibe. Like I like looking out there over the 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 grass and the water." And they said, "Well, um there's been a problem. Those concrete walls on either side of the creek are starting to shift. And I said, wow, how does that happen? Because they're buried so deep into the ground. Um, how are they moving? I said, well, we've had so much rain that, um, that the ground has become very soft from all of the, of the rainwater that's been collected. And slowly but surely, the bottom of those of, of those." concrete walls that kind of help guide the the water they're beginning to shift out 
And when they shift out, they bring the, the level of the, of the concrete down and it's getting close to the top of the water. And if it gets there, or if we have any more rain, it's going to spill out this water all over the area. It's going to be a big mess and there's going to be, you know, you know, potential flooding and things like that. So we need to um, have someone fix it now before there's a problem. So what they did was, is they dug out these giant trenches on either side of the concrete wall. So if you just kind of imagine, there's these, um, there's this, uh, these two concrete walls for this, for this that are there deep in the ground, that are the guide rails for the creek. On the outside of that, they dug this giant trench on both sides. It was very deep. I can't even begin to estimate. It had to be at least 10 feet deep. It was wider than it was deep. <clears throat> and so one day as, I, as they were doing all their work, I kind of moseyed along out there outside the fence and looked down. And what I saw was they were taking these beams and pushing the, 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 the bottom part of the concrete wall so that it was straight. And then they were leaving the beams underground as reinforcements and uh, to, to keep the walls in place so that even though there was rain, there would be a less opportunity or a less possibility, I should say, of them moving and sliding out again. They didn't just use one beam. They had several beams that were under the ground. They had some that were, that were um, pushing up against the very bottom where the, where the movement of the wall was happening. And then they had some others that were kind of at an angle that they would just use to prop up against the outside of this area. <clears throat> they did this to reinforce the wall. They wanted to make sure that there was no slippage and that there was no movement of those concrete walls by because of anything due to environment or anything that would happen in the future. They wanted to preserve the best chance for these uh, for these concrete walls to stay in place so that there would not be um, any water or flooding or, you know, the gathering of water that is not anywhere they intended. When I got into my study this week, I really saw this picture in my head after I read a passage of Scripture in Second Peter chapter 1. Now, a lot of people have heard the statement, hold on to your faith. I want you to hold on to it as if it's, you know, a cup or or a, a tangible thing I can grab and just hold on to. I don't want to let this slip out of my hands. But what does holding on to your faith really mean? We've defined faith over this series. We've talked about it as a noun, as a verb, as the the fuel for our decisions, as the only way we get to heaven. But holding on to our faith simply means that we are going to maintain our belief in Jesus and remain loyal to him. We're going to maintain our faith in Jesus and remain loyal to him. That is the basic definition of holding on to our faith. <clears throat> now, Peter is looking at things um, when he's writing this letter. He's writing it not to a specific city, um, as, as, as has happened before in the New Testament. He's writing this to all believers. It's kind of a general letter to every believer everywhere. Most scholars believe this is around 65 AD. It's you know about 30 years after Christ has died, give or take. And um, Peter is realizing that he is about to be executed. He's not going to get out of jail this time. He realizes it's going to end in his death. And so he's hearing stories of people that are out there in the world going to the churches and trying to tell them, look, Jesus, if he was going to come back, he'd have already done it by now. He would have already been here. Um, if he was going to, you know, really, after he ascended, come back and, and take us all away from here, then he would have already done it. So this, there's no way that he's coming. And they began to use these little bitty excuses as ways to erode the truth of the gospel to the people who were believers at that time. Then 
uh, they began to justify because Jesus isn't coming back. Maybe he hasn't done what he said. Maybe he's not the son of God. And they begin to take those little steps further and further and further away from the truth of the gospel. And they would get to the point where they were justifying their immoral lives and immoral behavior. Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter, hears about this and he wants to make sure he addresses it once and for all right before um, or seemingly just before he he feels he's about to be executed. <clears throat> and so this is how he starts off addressing that issue. And so 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 7. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who has called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. What Peter is getting at here is he is and he has been an eyewitness to the entire ministry of Jesus. He has been there for the feeding of the 5,000. He's been there for all the healings. He's been there for the miracles. Remember, Peter is the one who wanted to walk on the water with Jesus, and Jesus said, come, and he got out there, and as he was taking a few steps, he he became afraid because the waves were too big, and he began to sink. He's the one who cut off the ear of the soldier that Jesus had to heal when they were coming to take Jesus to trial. He was the one who swore, I will never, you know, forsake you. I'll never betray you. And he's the one who actually did it three times before the rooster crowed. This is Peter. He's the loudmouth of the group. He is the the vocal person that um, everybody wants to follow, and occasionally he gets out over his skis, and then everybody kind of rolls their eyes at. That's Peter's temperament and personality. But he is reminding people here, I walked with Jesus. I heard him say all of these things. I watched him do all of these miracles. I watched what he said come to pass when he cursed the fig tree. I've watched all of these things that are recorded for us in his word. And I want to remind you, he is coming back. I am a testament, a living example. I'm giving you my eyewitness account and guaranteeing you, yes, Jesus said that. And yes, he is returning. But... He says something that honestly kind of made me uncomfortable. He says, I want to supplement, I want you to supplement your faith. When I think of supplement, I think of, um, you know, if you're on a diet or if you're on a workout routine at a gym and you take supplements or you take vitamins or you take protein or something like that to try to, you know, boost up the level of something in your system. But this word supplement actually means to uh, to reinforce, or um, it, it's a, a, it's an accessory. It is not the cake; it's the icing. It's not the donut; it's the chocolate uh, glaze on the top of it. You know, I'm. You can probably tell I'm a former sugar addict, so the Lord is helping me. But <clears throat> um, Peter says, "I want you to supplement your faith." The reason I kind of I, I kind of was uncomfortable with that because I thought, well, man, all I need is faith. I just need to, you know, keep on my faith, but and, and maintain my faith. But if I'm going to maintain my loyalty here, if I'm going to supplement my faith, he's telling us I want you to reinforce it with these seven things that are listed here. I want you to to reinforce it, much like the the walls on the creek that were starting to to slide out of place and and cause a problem. He doesn't want the environment, the false teaching, the ideas of the world to slowly erode your confidence in Christ. And then he doesn't want those things to cause your faith to shift and begin to sink. He wants you to do the work of digging down deep and reinforcing your faith with this <clears throat> with the seven things that he has 
um, listed here in this passage. So I want to go through these just really quick. Um, the first one is moral excellence. Moral excellence. Um, this has been described also in a different translation as virtue. So I want to look at the phrase moral excellence and the phrase virtue um, separately as reinforcements to our faith. But um, Peter referred to moral excellence again in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. He said this in that passage, Prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But you, <clears throat> but you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. Moral excellence, living a life of moral excellence will reinforce our faith. Why? Because if we begin to compromise in little areas, if we begin to say, um, I just want to do this, is, that, is it really that bad? Does the Bible really say that I don't get to do this thing? Does the Bible really say that I can't touch it? Does, it really, does the Bible really say to stay away from these things? Is there really a standard of you know sexual ethics listed in Scripture? I mean, isn't that just the Old Testament? Isn't that kind of an archaic idea? And they begin to take, people in our culture begin to take little steps further and further and further and further away from, um, from the truth of the gospel. And the more you take these steps away from the truth of the gospel, you begin to justify sin. Just like the people that Peter addressed in 2 Peter chapter 1, they begin to justify their life actions that are immoral. And what happens is, is the influence of the culture begins to rain down on their life and, their, and the ground of their life starts to become soft and they begin to compromise little by little by little, not realizing that those compromises on moral excellence and moral living begin to erode the faith that we have in God. Heard a story one time of a pastor who took his family to watch a, I think it was like a, a family-friendly show like Blue Man Group or something like that in Las Vegas. And we're not too far from here, from Phoenix, so it was kind of a short trip, but he wanted to take his family to a buffet before the show. The buffet had a rule. If you were 10 years old or under, you got to eat for free. <clears throat> well, he, his wife, and his three kids... Um, we're going to rack up a little bit of a bill here because it was about 25 bucks per person to come eat. And so he wanted to save a little bit of money. So his daughter was very obviously, she was a young teen at the time, so she was very obviously over the age of 10. But his son had just had a birthday two weeks before. And so he decided, hey, I'm going to just kind of fudge a little bit here and be like, um, yeah, he's still 10. And then they had a younger one that was under 10, so he could save the money he was about to spend. So when they walked up to the, to the, um, to the person who was taking their order and, and letting them in you know, to, to go to the buffet and eat the food, they asked him in front of his entire family, um, how, many, how many people over the age of 10? And he said three, knowing that his son just turned 11 and it should have been four. His son kind of piped up just innocently and said, Dad, what are you talking about? I just turned 11. And he's like, shush, shush, stop it, stop it, shush, shush, shush. you know, giving him that, you know, that parent kind of evil eye, like, stop it, no, shh. And so he goes, no, 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 he, yeah, he's, he's, he's about to be 11. He just, you know, he's, he's 10, we're good. And so they believed him and he saved the $25. But by the time he got to sit down at the table for the food, his son just watched his father lie. And the son is devastated at the table, and he's saying, Dad, I thought you said that we don't lie no matter what. We always 
tell the truth, that we don't lie to get out of problems or to do things that are or to, you know, to make things better on us. We always tell the truth. That's what you've always taught me in the, in the, and the young man was visibly upset, and his son, his his dad was trying to explain it's not that big of a deal. And he said, "No, Dad, you lied." That one element of compromise to save twenty five bucks cost him something far more expensive with his son. See, that's kind of how sin works, right? We do these little compromises going through life. We do these, we take little steps. We just fudge a little bit. We just claim one extra person on our taxes. We just, uh, we don't tell anybody what we were really doing last night. We participate not all the time, but sometimes in these immoral actions of life. And what happens is, is the ripple, they may seem very, very minor. It's not that big a deal, but on the outside, there's a ripple effect happening that will have a greater impact on us. And if unchecked, can lead to a weakening of our faith. Peter's telling people, hey man, reinforce your faith with moral excellence. The moral excellence doesn't get you saved. You, the faith in Jesus alone does that. But if you're going to maintain it, maintain the, the strength of your faith, reinforce it with a life of moral excellence. The other word that's used in a different translation of this verse instead of moral excellence is virtue and it kind of and there's basically two sides to that coin as i got into my study and read some uh, some commentaries and listened to some people and read a few things about this about this word and about this passage so one side of the coin is excellent is excellence like you know excellent in moral living but the other side of the coin of the word virtue is strength and courage to stand for what you believe. Paul deals with this in Romans 1, 16 through 19. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from the start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he is more than likely in prison here as well. And he is in the same vein Peter is addressing people, Paul is addressing people and saying, do not be ashamed. Maintain your courage. Maintain your confidence in Christ, even though there's outside pressure to weaken that faith. Um, When we were... uh, is many years ago, probably probably 18 or 17 years ago, my wife and I traveled with some of the best people in the world, um, friends to this day, you know, a part of our frontline worship team. And we took a massive tour uh, throughout the country several times, but this particular one was the longest stretch we had ever been on. We were gone for the majority of about 16 months um, and had a couple of weeks and, and things here that we kind of took off. But the majority of the time, we were gone on the road, just driving, traveling, sharing the gospel with people, and leading worship at conferences and services and things. Well, <clears throat> the, uh, my son at the time was about four. And it was after it was uh, after a service, on a Sunday night service, Monday morning, about 3 o'clock in the morning, he wakes up screaming in pain. Nina and I were, were out cold because we were, had just spent, you know, just kind of kind of given our heart at that service that we were just at and woke up to him screaming. We were confused trying to figure out what was going on. And he just kept saying, Dad, my tooth, my tooth. Um, I looked inside his in, inside his mouth and he had this, it was super swollen and there was a giant cavity in his mouth. Now, this was very peculiar to us because we didn't let him have candy. He didn't drink soda. We limited his sugar intake. Um, we didn't. We, we were brushing his teeth twice a day, in the morning and at night. We were trying to avoid this very situation from happening. But here he is with a a swollen abscess in his mouth. You know, his teeth, his his 
tooth has got a massive cavity and rotted all the way through, you know, on the one of his back teeth. And we were stunned. And so we called the church and, you know, the, by the grace of God, they had a, a dentist that went to their church and they were able to literally work us in in the morning and extract the tooth and give him some medication so that um, he could uh, he, he'd be out of pain. Well, they told us you should limit his sugar intake. And we were confused and we're like, man, well, we, we are. And so after he kind of came out of the procedure, I started talking to him and I'm like, son, um, you don't eat very much candy. And he just kind of put his head down and he goes, I do eat candy, dad. And I said, but who gives it to you? And he said, everybody from the frontline team, they all give me candy. When we started, he just kind of had this moment of confession, you know, it was cute for a, a four-year-old little boy. He was just upset, you know, that he knows he's not supposed to be doing it, but he's, the, the, all these people he really lo- looks up to are slipping him Starburst and Skittles and Now and Laters and, you know, Twizzlers and stuff. And he goes, everybody on the team, every time we stop for, a, uh, you know, at a, at a gas station or for a bathroom break or something, they're all like sliding me a piece of gum or something. And uh, he goes, and dad. All the pastors of all the churches, they give me gum too. They give me candy too. And I'm like, okay, son, well, it's okay. And he goes, and dad, all the youth pastors and all the children's pastors, every time I go to a church, they're just handing me candy and I love it. And he just, and he ate so much candy, but we had no clue. We had no clue that there was this private erosion going on behind the scenes. This lends itself to what we just talked about, that if we're going to maintain a courage, a consistent confidence in our faith and stand against the culture for the betterment of the culture and stand with the principles of the gospel, we're going to have to be prepared to endure um, continual or private erosion from the culture. It used to be People would just want to take a little step. They wanted to just venture a little bit into a gray area of immoral living. But what that does is, like we talked about for on the moral excellence, it slowly begins to decay and rot the culture around us. And it's going to eventually cause pain. Right now in our culture we are past the point of slow decay and we are in an advanced expedited level of decay because there's no more little steps. It is giant leaps away from reality, sanity, moral excellence as defined in scripture, not in human beings or by the government or law. You know, we see this in the area of abortion. You know the how it was presented at the be, the beginning. You know back in the '60s was that abortion was supposed to be three 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 things: safe, legal, and rare. Well, I would say that that the taking those little steps away from that idea in our country um, has wound up impacting and murdering the lives of 65 million unborn children, and that number upticks every single day. At the beginning, there wasn't just 65 million abortions that need to happen. No, slowly as it became pushed and accepted and advertised and and try to be normalized, people continued to go down that road in accepting the fact that murdering the unborn is justified. See what I mean? Just little steps in those directions lead us or lead the culture to giant steps of accepting wild things that are wildly immoral. If we're going to reinforce our faith, we need to do it with moral excellence, excellent living from a, a a biblically moral perspective, and through the other side of that coin of virtue, which is the strength and the courage to stand up for exactly what Scripture says. <clears throat> the third thing that he says to reinforce your belief with and your faith with is knowledge. We see a lot of people today who are believers who don't really can't really articulate what the word gospel means. 
They can't really articulate what it is to live morally excellent. They don't really participate a lot in scripture memory. They just hit the church every once in a while, a couple of times a month. Maybe you go every week or hit youth group or or you catch the service online every once in a while and be like, oh yeah, I've kind of got my little uh, my little verse in or my little you know Bible hit in for the week. Um, but they don't really know, and so uh, a, a lot about the foundations of what they believe. They just said they believed it and recited a prayer somewhere and think they're good to go. But if you haven't taken the time to to reflect on, to study, to understand what Scripture says about the the the, the roots or the foundation of your faith, then when people come and ask you questions about it, when people come and ask questions about the Bible or something that they heard, you know, the one of these new intellectual atheists say, um, They'll ask you these things, and you could be swayed by it away from your faith. Peter's saying here, obtain knowledge. And he's not, you know, throwing out a novel idea here. You know, uh, the wisest man not named Jesus to ever walk the earth was Solomon. And these are two of his Proverbs, Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 4, 7, 7, getting wisdom is the wisest thing you can do, and whatever else you do, develop good judgment. So the beginning of knowledge is fear of the Lord, not being afraid. I don't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this but um, due to time constraints, but the fear of the Lord is not being afraid of Him. It is a is a reverence, a, a respect, a level of holding Him in high regard that we have when we're thinking about him, when we're conversing with him in prayer, when we're responding to his direction that's in his word. And here, um, Solomon says, you know, that getting wisdom is the wisest thing to do. Well, what is wisdom? It's knowledge correctly applied. So the, all of these things are tied together. You need knowledge, the knowledge of God, knowledge of his word, knowledge of your faith, knowledge of how to answer these questions, because if you are not knowledgeable, people can come through, ask you questions, and that can cause there to be a little erosion on the foundations of your faith. They can start to slip and start to have uh, moments where your faith is weakened. And then you start considering, should I remain loyal to this? And the answer is obviously yes. <clears throat> but, you know, I want us to ask ourselves a question. I had to do that this week on my own. How do we talk about God to other people? How do we, um, how do we respond to him when we feel just compelled by his spirit to do something, to step in a direction? How do we deal with that? Oh, I'll deal with it later. Oh, yeah, I don't want to read the Bible today. I just don't have time. Oh, you know, I just, I'm passing on the the gathering together, the fellowship with the church, you know, this week, just because there's a lot going on. And none of that is inherently wrong. But if we flippantly deal with his word and flippantly and casually deal with his leading of his spirit as, as if we could be, it's something that we could just be like, ah, I'll take it or leave it, or I'll get to it later. We are not operating in the awe, the reverence, or the fear of God. If we deliberately argue with the creator of the universe about his instructions from our life, if we consistently reject the things that are in his word, we cheapen his sacrifice. I know you died for me. I know it was the most excruciating, torturous thing ever ima imaginable. I know you sent your son. I know he lived the perfect life. I know he did all these miracles. I know he paid the price I didn't pay, but <sighs> I'm a little tired today. And I don't really want to deal with whatever it is that you're convicting me about at the moment. My friends were wandering into dangerous territory. Salvation and maintaining your faith is not as easy as it's been presented. Peter lined this out. We must reinforce our faith, and he directly deals with knowledge, and that knowledge begins with the reverence and the fear of the Lord. The next thing he mentions is self-control. <clears throat> um, uh, Paul write, um, refers to this in 2 Timothy 1, 6-7. 
This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us the spirit of fear or and timidity, but of power, love, and of self-discipline. When we think of self-control, a lot of us immediately think about, you know, a diet or, or an exercise routine or something along that nature, right? But this self-control, I want to, you can get, that's kind of the fruit of a lack of self-control. Self-control that he's talking about is the self-portion of us, the fleshly nature that Paul says that we are at war with constantly because we have been made new. The Spirit of God is is uh, residing with us. He indwells us if you're a real believer. And now this old nature has this way of popping things up you want to do and you're fighting that thing. I'm crucifying my flesh every day. <clears throat> this, When he's talking about self-control, it is a determination that I am not going to be controlled by this old nature. I'm not going to uh, be controlled by fear. I'm not going to be controlled by timidity. I'm not going to be controlled by these impulses and desires that my flesh wants me to fill right at this moment, regardless of the consequences. I'm not going to be mastered by those things. I am going to be in control of that self, of what I do. That is not a self-help revelation. That is the anchor, the last fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The Spirit of God empowers you with an ability you didn't have before salvation, you didn't have before his indwelling, um, of a level of self-control to push that flesh away with some force to say, I am not going to be controlled by this flesh. Why? Why does he list that here? Because if we're controlled by the flesh, the environment around us, start giving in to the, the, the impulses that we see in other people and, and, and fantasizing about going and living some other life of less discipline and more uh, immediate gratification for that self, that fleshly nature, what happens? Our faith begins to erode. And he's saying that if you would push that away, that is a, that's a, just another beam underground to reinforce your faith. <clears throat> Next thing he talks about, patient endurance. Hebrews 10, 35-37, so do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised, for in just a little while the coming one will come and not delay. <clears throat> this is the writer of Hebrews, again in lockstep with Peter and with Paul, saying, hey, do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. That confident trust is the description of the word faith. It is the definition of it. There is a conviction, a confidence that I have in Christ that I'm not going to throw away. That There's a reward that comes to us. But in the moments where there's a lot going on in the culture, a lot of temptation, a lot of us being stuck in our head, a lot of thoughts running over and over, he says you need patient endurance. Patient endurance requires fortitude, grit, and an uncompromising attitude. I'm not saying that believers shouldn't be kind or uh, nice when possible, or loving in some kind of way. But there should be an element of grit, of fortitude, of I'm not quitting, I am not compromising on anything, any part of this message of the gospel, I'm not compromising on it. I recently got into a conversation with someone online who was very upset with me because I refused to acknowledge that the New Age principles in Christianity were basically the same and worked hand in hand together and that it was loving for me to allow someone with New Age philosophy and New Age ideas to slide them into the Christian faith and just kind of massage them together so it become this better, beautiful thing. That is not how this works. There has to be some grit, an uncompromising attitude to say, no, you are not putting anything else into the mix of God's word. 
I'm not going to allow you to add another cup of sugar to the ingredients of God's perfect cake that is, uh, that is his word. I'm not going to allow you to put in more baking soda. I'm not going to ask you to allow you to put more salt. I'm not going to allow you to de- decorate it however you want to. No, there are instructions here, and truth by nature is exclusive, and it will exclude anything that is false. And since Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, anything else outside of him is excluded. There is no other way to heaven. We have to have a not just endurance, because if you're trying to endure, you can get frustrated. He says patient endurance, a resolve that we are not going to listen to any of these compromising statements from other people or allow them to blend anything else into our faith. No, if we do that, the walls begin to erode, our faith begins to slip, and Peter is saying, hey, get down there and use this grit, this patient endurance to reinforce exactly what you believe. <clears throat> Next one's godliness. First Timothy 4, 7-8, Paul says this, Don't waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better. Promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. Now look, Peter is not, or I'm sorry, Paul in his in his letter to Timothy here is not saying that there's no no benefit to working out. He said there is a profit, but it's less than the pursuit of godliness. <clears throat> About eight years ago, I had a health scare. Um, I was in a routine checkup, and my doctor found a spot that was on my back that I couldn't see very well. And after a couple of specialists looked at it and a couple of you know, more appointments and a biopsy, it was determined that it was a very, it was the beginning of a very aggressive form of cancer. I had to immediately book um, a surgery to cut off a, a giant swath of skin off of my back. It's pretty, it's pretty gross at the time, but they, they, they take all of it off. They measure out a certain um, distance depending on how deep it is. They had to bi- uh, biopsy two of my lymph nodes to make sure that the, the cancer cells had not spread and thank God, you know, that he protected me from that and there was no cancer there. And there has been no return of that over the last, you know, probably about seven years now. <clears throat> but one of the things they said is because you've had this issue, you need to do some extra things. You need to be wearing sunscreen when you're going outside. You need to find a sun shirt if you're at the beach for an extended period of time. You need to uh, reduce your sugar intake because um, the cancer cells uh, feed off sugar. You need to, you know, follow these guidelines of things that will help you get healthy. And those are are profitable and very useful. And they're great um, direction for someone who has a health problem. They're great. It'll help you extend your life. It'll help you have more energy to do the things that God's calling you to do. It'll, it'll, it'll give you more stamina to deal with your kids and, and, and the things that, um, you're giving your life to and the efforts and the purpose that you're trying to fulfill. All of those things our culture is wildly focused on. Got to work out. Got to eat right. And those are very good things. Extend your life in all the ways we just talked about. But the greater exercise is the pursuit of godliness. You're, you know, if you're somebody who works out like, welcome to the gun show, you know, like your guns are not going to benefit you in eternity. But what he's saying here is that there is a benefit now and in eternity for your godliness. The reward of your biceps will not be seen on the other side, but the reward of your godliness will be accounted. If we're going to live a godly life, if we're going to pursue godliness, if we're not going to waste time arguing over these godless ideas, but we're going to train ourselves similar to the way that we train our body. We're going to train ourselves to remain godly. What's that doing? It is reinforcing those walls. It is reinforcing our faith, and it will help us to maintain, to hold on to, to remain loyal to Almighty God through our faith in Him. Last one they list there is brotherly affection. 
<clears throat> Romans 12, 9 through 11 says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. <clears throat> genuine brotherly affection, brotherly love. Now, there are many places in uh, the church, the body of Christ, where we don't do this well. It's just a fact. We don't do it very well. We would rather gossip about the person we don't like at church. We would rather whisper what we heard that they did or didn't do or they said or they didn't say or how they acted or didn't act. We would rather, because it's so much easier from that old fleshly nature, if we're not pursuing godliness, if we're not pursuing the things that we talked about earlier, it's so much easier to speak ill of someone. It's so much easier to, um, to, to talk junk about somebody just flatly than it is to have that discipline to squash that, to kill those tendencies in us of our flesh and encourage them. We used, we used to have a saying, and this might you know show my age a little bit here, but when I was a kid, we used to, you know, we would hear someone who was cursing a lot, or they would say say swear words or whatever, and we would say something like, "Do you kiss your mama with that mouth?" You know, like we were we were in the south, so if you didn't say that anywhere, I apologize, but it was like, you know, all this filth is coming out with your mouth, but you love your mom, so you're gonna go see her, and then you're gonna kiss her, you know, even though those words coming out of your mouth are so foul, you know, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? And, you know, it's kind of funny, you know, now looking back on it, but let me, let me alter that statement just a little to bring it home for us. Do we talk to the Almighty God and sing His praises with the same mouth that we are backstabbing people in our own church? I mean, we got to be careful about this in the church uh, at large. You know, people online who have discussions and say things we disagree with here and there on secondary issues, but... I mean, or, uh, let's just even make it even smaller. Let's tighten the lens or tighten the focus a, a little bit, a little bit deeper. Um, are we talking junk about the people that are in our own church, our own faith community? If we are, we are not showing and following the example of brotherly affection. This says, um, abhor what is evil. Like instead of talking junk about them, outdo one another in showing honor. Is, is there a competition in your church to see who the best singer is and who gets the, 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 the best parts on the worship team? Well, that's nonsense. There should be a competition in you to outdo one another in how you show honor to each other. If we don't do that, he's calling us lazy. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And how are we serving the Lord with brotherly affection? Is because He has instructed us to use our gifts first to serve and honor Him, and then secondly to serve and honor our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then serve the world. <clears throat> and then the, la well, the, the very last thing He said after all of that was make sure to love, make sure that you have love for everyone. Um, you know, that's the greatest commandment Jesus gave us, right? Love God with everything you have and then love your neighbor as yourself. And as we see, all of these things reinforce our faith. That love for everybody does not mean acceptance of everything that, or every lifestyle, or every decision that people that, <clears throat> that, um, that are in our life make. It's loving them enough to stand for the truth, loving them enough to maintain our faith, loving them enough to, um, to, to say, I love you to, enough to tell you the truth. So why do all of this? Is this just, you know, a couple of ways to reinforce our faith? Is it just a couple of ways to, to make our, um, uh, our faith, you know, be stronger and hold on because what we're supposed to be doing as believers. No, there is a very practical reason that Peter says we should do these things. We're going to go back to that passage, 2 Peter uh, 1, 
and we're going to continue reading. We ended at verse 7. We're going to continue reading verses 8, 9, and 10. Listen to what he says. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you are really among those God has called and chosen. Do these things, and you will never fall away. That last line resonates with us today resonates with me. We live in a time where a lot of people want to deconstruct their faith. And in some aspects, that's good. If you deconstruct religion to get back to the purity of the gospel, then I understand. I'm with you. I've actually done that myself. But why do we do these things? It's because there is a possibility for every single person, no matter how good you think you are, there is a possibility that you fall away. How do I know that? His last line, do these things and you'll never fall away. That means there is a possibility. It may be small. It may be so minute. It may not even be anything that you regularly think of, but because you are a human being, there is a possibility for something somewhere to cause you some type of heartburn, cause your mind to be captured, to be drifting in a way. And what he's saying here is reinforce your faith. And if you reinforce your faith in Christ with these things that he's listed and just keep adding reinforcements, adding um, a more supplemental, adding uh, the, these, these supplemental um, principles to your faith, the more you do that, the less and less possibility you have of ever falling away. If you build your faith like that, you're going to be productive and useful in your knowledge of Christ, and you're going to avoid being the, the ones he calls short-sighted and blind. The encouragement for you today and the purpose of this message is to say, reinforce your faith. Don't just think I believe and so I'm good and uh, you know and I don't have to put any more time into this. No, salvation is not the end, it is the beginning. That faith is the start of an entirely brand new life. And if you want to maintain that faith, if you want to hold on to it, if you want to remain loyal to the God that you have professed your faith in, Peter's giving you some instruction here to reinforce that so you never fall away. If you're someone who didn't reinforce your faith and you're currently straying from God and you've fallen away from him, my friend, there's grace for you. How do I know? Because God gave me the exact same grace. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but we need to repent, turn our attention away from those things, declare our faith and loyalty to him and begin to shore up our faith. There is reconciliation. There is hope for you. If you're someone who says, man, I've never even considered giving my faith to God in the first place, then that is the initial place where you start. Those are the concrete walls on the creek in the example we use at the beginning. But once that happens, you need to reinforce them so you will endure till the end and you will never fall away.